on not only judgment but also grace as he brings his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, as Christ's glory is revealed and his kingdom expands, there will be those who are part of that kingdom and there are those who are not. And as we see that kingdom advance, and as we even look at the Psalter, one of the themes that we find is that there will be those who in Christ appears will be happy in that day. And there will be those when Christ appears and there will be much wailing and gnashing of teeth. And that is something that we need to come to terms with. That as the kingdom of Christ expands, there will be bad days for many and there will be good days for some. Uh, And so tonight I want to talk about this great day of the Lord that is introduced in Zephaniah's prophecy. And so I'm going to read first from Jeremiah chapter 30, then I'll move to Joel, then Zephaniah, and then from the book of Luke. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 30, just one verse there, uh, or three verses rather, seven through nine. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. Verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Then verse 11, we're skipping over a lot, I know that. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? And then Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. But those, I'm sorry, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. And then verses 14 through 16 of that same chapter, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, The mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Now, we come to the Gospel of Luke, and there Christ is speaking to his disciples of that day in which Jerusalem will experience great judgment. There is much disagreement about what Christ is referring to. Uh, In my series from the uh, book of Revelation, I made it very clear that I think that Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21... Uh, This is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 
that is called the great day of the Lord. But even as Jerusalem was sacked in 587 B.C., and again in an even greater, more thoroughgoing way in 70 A.D., these types of judgments are also symbolic of the great judgment that will occur at the end of the age of men on the last day of human history. This, in Luke 21, refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but is found within this theme of the judgment of God, the great day of the Lord. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. He's speaking of the Roman Empire, the Roman armies. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distresses of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Thus far... Reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our longing is not that we might discern all mysteries, for there are many mysteries that remain unknown. But for you, there are no mysteries. You know all seasons and times and days and hours. And you have revealed and manifested your power and glory so that we at least are assured that on the last day of history, that great enemy that is death will be conquered by Christ. And you will come and you will gather us to yourself. And there shall be no more faith in that we will see you face to face. Faith shall become sight. And you will wipe away all tears from our eyes. There will be no more crying or pain or suffering. That day is not today, however, for there are many tears. Not just the tears of our children, but the tears of suffering as we deal with death and the pain and the struggle and the striving against wickedness on earth. And so let this great day of the Lord, even tonight, be a great comfort to us. For we know that you are a God who brings comfort and salvation to those who hide in you. And so, Lord, may we hide in you tonight. We pray these things in your name. Amen. There is a great idea uh, that is lost to us in the church today. And that idea is the one that uh, Christ is on the throne. And the lordship of Christ assures us of great victory. But that victory will come in the midst of and through great conflict, of cosmic conflict. And so we must come to terms with the idea that Christ is not merely meek and mild, but that Christ is seated upon the throne and in his power and in his glory, he is redeeming his people uh, through judgment, even judgment. 
Uh, in Lewis's wonderful uh, series, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, we see a group of children preparing to meet Aslan for the first time. And uh, they encounter Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they do so as they are hiding, and they begin to ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about this great lion whom they are going to meet. And they are a bit afraid. You would be afraid, I would imagine, if you were to meet a lion in person. Uh, these children are still thinking like earth dwellers. And there is a conversation that erupts as they are preparing to go meet him. Uh, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan responds, oh, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Uh, it seems in our pluralistic, modern, soft age that we love to see Christ sort of put in a box. Uh, we do this theologically. We do this practically. We do this in a kind of therapeutic, emotional way. But that is not who Christ is. As Mr. Beaver would say, he's the king, I tell you. Now that is actually good news for some, but not for others. It should not terrify us, but it should not leave us unaffected. We should long to see Christ. But the manifestation of Christ in human history has not always been one in which he is warmly received, for he comes fulfilling the great call given him by the Father to establish his righteous rule on earth. The problem with the establishment of the righteous rule of Christ Jesus on earth as it is in heaven is that there will be those who are ready to receive him. And they fling wide the gates of the city and they say, we've been waiting for your coming. But there will be those who when they see him will shudder in terror. And the day of repentance is over. They have not kissed the sun as they are called to do in Psalm, one, or Psalm 2. But instead they have lived their entire lives rejecting his lordship. Abandoning his call to holiness and seeking to be kings and queens over their own lives. And in that day, the goodness of the king will be utterly horrific for them. This theme of the great day of the Lord is one that is manifested and expounded upon in the book of Zephaniah. And I want to look at it tonight under these three headings. The first, the very near day of the Lord, that is from the perspective of Zephaniah, he is speaking in chapter 1 of 587 B.C., in which, 586, Israel, the southern kingdom, is taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. The very near day of the Lord, point two, the more distant day of the Lord that we see manifested in 70 A.D., and Zephaniah does speak of that in chapter 3, verse 8. And then I'm going to take those two days, though they are not unique in history, because there's something of Noah and the ark, of Israel and the Red Sea, 
even in those days of judgment. And I want to talk about, thirdly, the day of judgment yet remaining, what is future for all of us. Stay with me tonight. I know you're tired. It's difficult when the sun goes down so early. I was yawning myself earlier. Lord, give me energy. The very near day of the Lord. Now, Zephaniah is writing to the southern kingdom, as I have said, at the time of Josiah's reforms. And what we find is this strategic effort made from the top down, Josiah the king, tearing down the high places of the pagan gods, the Asherah, the Baals, these idols, to Moloch, all of these pagan places of worship. Josiah went through the land and he says, we are going to keep the first table of the law of God. And Zephaniah, who was most likely related to the old king Hezekiah, whose name meant hidden by God, is exhorting the Israelites as a minister of the gospel to repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repent for judgment is waiting. This is what we see in chapter 2. Hide. Seek the Lord. And for a nation that was covered over by sin, of course that call to seek the Lord is a call to repentance. All gospel call is a call to repentance. But what was happening in Jerusalem and in Judea, in the land of Judah, is what was a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Israel in Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus 18, verse 27 through 29, the Lord says to them, For all these abominations the men of the land have done, who were before you, he's talking about the pagan nations, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. God is being true to his word. And he is about to, in his providence, vomit the nation of Israel, the two tribes that remained in that land, out of the land for the same sins that the northern kingdom had been vomited out of. Now, in the Old Testament, that land was a distinct region, just east of the Mediterranean, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. The land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, even though God, by the end of the book of Joshua, had established Israel in safety in that land, the great high priest had died, and so all of those who were in the city of refuge were home. All 12 tribes were planted there. The housewarming party had ceased, and there they were, all at home, safe and tucked in their beds. And yet the next book we find, the book of Judges, where I'll go next in the evening, we see that the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. And the refrain is, there was no king in the land. But there was, wasn't there? For Christ himself was their king. But they were envious not only of the gods of other nations, but the kings of other nations. And in the book of Judges, we see the downward spile of rebellion. The nagging influence and aggravations and violence of Egypt in the form of the Philistines, who were the descendants of the Egyptians. And time and time and time again, the people of God were judged by the Lord, by him, for their sins. And here in Zephaniah, the people once again 
rebelled against the authority of their God. And so they would be spit out. And this proclamation of judgment was not one that could be avoided. It was coming. The question was, for those who still could listen and had ears to hear, men like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, or better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were faithful young men. Perhaps they heard the preaching of Zephaniah, and in their hearts they repented. I don't know. We don't know. We just know that by the time they were carried away into Babylon, they were righteous men who feared God. And even though Israel was put into the fire of judgment, what do we see happening with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That the fire of judgment will not touch those who walk with Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? If you look at Daniel in its context, those who walk with Christ are saved from the judgment of God, even through the pagan nation Babylon. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's anger that Israel had to fear. It was whose? Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and send the soul to hell. What will we do, dear saints, when the world comes for our families? In whom will we hide? Will we learn to hide by speaking the language of idolatry, by paying homage to the state and to those lords of the state? Or will we say, you can do what you will to me, but I fear the Lord? Will you open your windows and prayers so that others can see? That's the question. When the day of wrath comes, whom will you hide in and who will you hide from? And so what the Lord is actually doing in these exercises of judgment, not only 587, but what the great day of the Lord does is it divides the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, those who are of the seed of the woman and those who are of the seed of the serpent. And the way that that is expressed is this. God is cleaning the land. He is purifying the place for those who shall one day inherit it. It's the cycle. In fact, the first time we see it in God's word is the book of Genesis. Where there was a man who found favor with the Lord, Noah. And the whole world was judged except for that one family. All the earth experienced the great and awesome day of judgment except for Noah. The meek man, the righteous man. And they were placed in the land after it had been purified. Now we know that that was not enough. And it's not because God did not know how to do it. It was because God had been for and would for the following centuries and millennia show the church exactly what must be done for the land to be purified. We don't need Noah. We don't need Moses or David, the one who destroyed the Philistines. We don't need Zephaniah or a Daniel. There is one greater who the Lord is preparing us for. And he's doing so through these recurring biblical, redemptive, historical themes. And so the pattern that we find, here's the pattern, it is the rise of high-handed sin before the Lord. His response of judgment against those who practice such sins, the preservation of the righteous, the clearing away of the land or the earth, the reestablishing of the chosen people in that land, 
the reinstitution of worship and faithful living. All of this constitutes a pattern that we see repeated in the course of redemptive history. God is separating, as I said last week, this remnant from those who are judged. These themes go hand in hand and they are glorious gospel themes. So that the next place we see Israel going after that great day of judgment and Egypt is judged, not only in the tenth plague, the final plague, but also in the drowning of that nation in the Red Sea, is Israel goes where? They go to the mountain of God for worship. This is exactly what will happen on the last day of human history. We will go to the mountain of God for worship. And it will be the first time in the history of the world where men and God will dwell and there will be no threat of going back to that wicked system. That cycle will have been ended because Christ will have defeated death at that time. Now that's a future time for us. Zephaniah is talking about the days, 586, when Israel will be brought or taken out of the land and there will be in the language that we find of Zephaniah, a decreational language, right? It's like the undoing, the reversal of creation. In fact, it's not unlike what excommunication is. If a person comes to the church and he professes faith in Christ, this session admits him into membership of the visible church. But when that person in their life shows that they have unconfessed, unrepentant sin, that they are idolaters and they refuse to repent, what happens? The elders of that church say, what we heard, we now no longer accept. We are undoing what we once did. In that, we find the discipline of the church. Christ exercises his discipline even in that way. It's a decreational thing. It is the undoing of what God had done. Now, let's go to the second point, the more distant day of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, and we will look at more of this next week in its greater context and the other, the other ideas that are in that chapter. This is what we read. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord. Wait for a later date, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations, not just Israel to the land and establish them in the land, but the nations, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This speaks of God's judgment that will await when God judges that great city, Jerusalem, in 70 A.D., because look at what comes after. For then I will restore to the people a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. What event, what event marks the resurrection of Christ and is testimony of God bringing the nations into the storehouse? What is it? It is the restoration of the pure spiritual language born witness on the day of Pentecost when those flaming tongues come down from heaven. This is what we find fulfilled in the ministry of Christ and his kingdom, his kingship in 70 AD when Christ rode against the city and the temple. It's the same kind of sin. In fact, it's the same people. 
more or less, the old covenant people of God. It's the same judgment. They would be banished from off the land, except now it is more final because Christ has come. So in the book of Daniel, where the Lord says to him, seal up the words of this prophecy. And in the book of Revelation, God says, or Christ says to John, unseal or do not seal up the words of this prophecy because they are about to happen. These two days are not so dissimilar. God will ride out in judgment. Christ will ride out in judgment against those who reject him. In 587, who are they rejecting? The prophet Zephaniah. Who, though sent by Christ, is not Christ as he came in the Gospels. In the Gospels, Christ walked among men, and despite his preaching, repent as John the Baptist did, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, they didn't just put the prophets to death, they put the capital P prophet to death. They rejected his earnest pleading, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And instead of hiding from judgment, by getting beneath the cross and the blood that Christ shed on Calvary, they said, crucify him. They didn't cling to his blood for salvation. They made sure he bled as a traitor, as a blasphemer, as a son of the devil. But there were those who did hide in Christ. Even on the day of Christ's death, you have John, the beloved disciple, and his own mother there, weeping. And then Christ appeared to the apostles in the upper room, and there he called them. And later, to be his apostles, his disciples, his witnesses throughout all the earth, so that they may do what? They may preach that apostolic word. And what is it? It is the same as Zephaniah's. The meek shall inherit the earth. In fact, Christ is the one who preaches this. It is the gospel of the kingdom of the Messiah. So that even now when men climb into the pulpits and they preach the word of God, their gospel is the same gospel that is rung forth from the mouths of those like Moses and David and the prophets. Kiss the son. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Judgment is coming. Or as we say somewhat colloquially around here, get on the boat because the rain's coming. Get on the boat. What is that code for? Hide in Christ. Get beneath the blood-stained lintel. Be washed. Be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, this recurring theme can evoke terror. But it is actually meant to instill hope. On his little treatise, kind of a one-page treatise, on the book of Zephaniah, Doug Wilson writes, the general theme works like this, that of the day of the Lord. Hopeless corruption now, certain judgment pending, and God's deliverance a certainty after that. We see this in the corruptions of Israel in the Old Testament, the cataclysmic judgments that befall her, culminating in 70 AD, followed by the times of refreshing, ushered in by the Messiah of God. These times of refreshing are when we are privileged to live. Now, you may say, what refreshing? Well, look at what the gospel has accomplished throughout the world. 
Christ has never promised that we will not have an enemy, right? Satan wanders around like a roaring lion, singing who he may devour. Demons scattered over all the earth, and there is a cosmic, spiritual, supernatural conflict as to who will control history. But Satan's days are numbered. Christ is on the throne. He has been given by the Father that great seat of authority because he died and was raised. Christ's resurrection and subsequent sending out of the Holy Spirit is the divine guarantee, the divine surety that the mission of the church, though it will be assaulted on every side. Remember Paul died in a Roman prison. You could die in prison. I can't, it's hard to think of what may happen with my children and my grandchildren. Because how in the world can we escape now coming judgment? How dare we even assume with the sin, the blood guilt that we have stained this land with, that we will somehow not be judged. But the promise isn't that we will not see judgment around us. That the promise is, though we see judgment fall upon those who surround us in Christ, we are safe. Not from all the effects of judgment. Because Daniel and his friends still ended up in Babylon. Christ died at the hands of the Roman Empire. Paul died in a Roman prison. But what does Paul say at the end of his life? Though I am in chains, the word of God is not bound. You show me a man whose power can contend with that of the Holy Spirit. Even the devil, who is far more powerful than we, we see in the book of Revelation, is bound. What does that mean? Well, what does Christ say in the Gospels? Now that the strong man is bound, we have run of the house. And though our efforts are not always rewarded in the way that we want, We are, in the ministry of the church, seeing incredible fruit such that the final great day of the Lord will not look like those great days but in times past. There will be a time of judgment. But as we look to the future, we have a great hope because our hope is connected to the lordship and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. There will come a day of fire. We see that, the refiner's fire. We see that in the book of Revelation, but it will not be a day of complete destruction. It will be like what God does in our lives, not unlike the picture that Moses saw when Christ is in that bush and it is burning, but it is not consumed. Christ is, through his church, even now, purifying the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. And that proclamation of the gospel results in one of two things. It is either a decree of judgment or a decree of mercy and grace. What the day of judgment teaches us is that it is a day of wrath for some, but salvation for others. Concerning the book of Zephaniah, the promise of peace and safety for Israel. It speaks of a time when their king is in their midst. All will be fulfilled when Christ returns to judge the world and redeem it for himself. Just as he ascended after his resurrection. So will he return and set up a new Jerusalem on earth. At that time, at that time, 
all of God's promises to Israel be fulfilled. All of them. But even now, many are coming to pass. I sit, I'm not sitting, I stand in a room preaching to those who are saved by grace. And we are thousands of miles from the place where the gospel began. And it's because of the faithful ministry of men like Paul and the apostles, the faithful parenting of godly parents who may not have had godly parents, this sort of working of the gospel in God's grand design to bring about the fruition of the building of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But judgment is part of that plan. It must be. As long as there are wicked on the earth, there will either be judgment or there will be grace or mercy. But what we can be assured of is this, that what God is doing is according to his word, according to his promises, and he is continuing to make a way for a meek, righteous, Christ-seeking people. So how are we to think of the future, of the kingdom, of the inheritance that is stored up for the saints? Well, what must we do? Well, we must repent. How many times? As many times as our hearts tend to go with the kingdom that can be shaken. It is an enticing thing. Christ was tempted three times. David Vogel preached on that this morning. Three times Satan came to him in the wilderness and he tempted him to do what? To give up the kingdom that cannot be shaken to become Lord of a kingdom that could. And Christ remembered what God the Father had promised him. The question for us is this. Will we remember those promises in the same way? Will we remember the word of God? Will we remember that God is true? What does 587 B.C. or 586 and 70 A.D. have to do with us? What do these acts of divine wrath have to do with us? That Christ has, as he has done in the past, he will show himself faithful to do in the future. Our hope is that God will once again do the work of remodeling, of refining, of cleansing that which is broken, which is under the fall. And listen, one day when you and I are placed back on earth and there is no more sin, there is no more death, nor will there be signs of sin or death. Earth will be made holy and completely new like it was when Adam and Eve were put in the garden. I want to be there. I want to see what it's like. I want to see what it's like living on earth without coveting my neighbor's house or being angry. And all of those vestiges of the old man will be completely and utterly gone. That is the day that you and I are praying for. But until that day comes, we have much to do. But all of that we do with this great hope that Christ will come again and he will bring us to himself. Let me pray.